But I want to begin with a question. It might feel like a slightly theoretical question, a bit heady, but I think actually it's very practical and really important for each of us. Here we go. Are you someone who lives your life out of your feelings or your convictions? Are you someone who lives your life, does your life, acts out of your feelings as the governing, directing principle in your life, or your convictions? Let me give you a couple of definitions just to help us. By feelings, I mean what our emotions are telling us in the minute, in the second, in the nanosecond, how we feel. And we even use that language, oh, I'm not feeling it. Or, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm feeling it. And we use that to govern what we do. Or, by convictions, I mean uh, deeply held, deliberate, battle-worn beliefs about life that are rock solid and you can build on whatever happens in your life. Are you someone who lives out of your feelings or your convictions? Now, how I've loaded the definitions there, uh, you might sense where I might be going with it, okay? But I want to say something very important up the front. Before we talk about convictions, as Christians, we do not hate feelings. We need to state that. As Christians, we're not anti-feeling. Someone once put it like this, that in the journey of life, as you're driving through your life, our feelings make great passengers but terrible drivers. Now, I think that's extremely helpful. If I could get that into my skull, I think 90% of my angst would be resolved. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, Our feelings are not bad. They're part of our humanity. God gave us our feelings. God created us with emotion. They weren't a product of the fall. We're meant to have feeling. And some of you are nudging your husbands and going, yeah, see, you're meant to have feeling, okay? We're meant to. We're meant to engage with our feelings, not suppress our feelings, not ignore our feelings. If you were driving along the Aston Expressway and you chucked your passenger out or ignored them for the whole journey, that would be very rude. We want to engage with the passenger of our feelings. And in good times, there's someone to share it with. Wonderful. It enriches the experience. In bad times, our feelings can tell us hey, this isn't going so well. It's been not going so well for a while. So we want to listen to our feelings, etc. But you never, ever, ever catch, oh, never want to throw your keys to feelings, okay? You never want to throw your keys to feelings. But Sam Keon caught them brilliantly. You never want to give the keys to your car of your life to your feelings. You never want them in the driving seat. Might just be me. My feelings are seriously up and down. Uh, Many of you know that. Uh, My feelings are like a yo-yo, like held by a kangaroo on a pogo stick in a lift. They're just like all over the place all the time. And I want to engage with my feelings, but I don't want an erratic force like my emotions driving me. Because if you have an erratic force driving your life, you will crash. Now, Jesus is our great example in this, as in all things. Jesus was absolutely full to the brim, wasn't he, of passionate feelings. He lived life with feeling in the space of 30 seconds at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, the one he loved, it said. As his friend dies. And think about it. He knows he's about to raise him from the dead and solve the problem. He knows there is no problem here. I'm about to solve it. 
And yet simply the fact that his friend had died, he howls, he roars with grief and then raises him from the dead. He's the perfect person and passionate feelings are part of the perfect person, but he was never driven by his feelings, was he? Think about it. Think about Jesus in the wilderness at the start of his ministry. He's driven to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Some of you know that experience. And he's there and he feels tempted. He is tempted. He feels hungry. He feels sad. And then he turns to Satan and he he brings a conviction to bear on his feelings. He says, no, it is written. It's written. That's how I live. It is written. Think about him in the garden. Right before he dies, pouring out his heart to his father, sweating, weeping. God, is there any other way? No stiff upper lip here. And then he finds a conviction. He digs deep and he finds a conviction. He says, no, your will though, your will be done. That is how I live. Jesus learned that feelings were excellent passengers and terrible drivers. Here's a question. Have you learned that? Have you learned that? We got to learn that. We have to learn that. Because the reality is that right now we live in a culture that very much celebrates us expressing and engaging with our feelings. And I am all for that. That is a thing to be thankful for that we express and we engage with our feelings. But our culture has gone beyond that, as it so often does, oversteps its mark, to teach us that we shouldn't just express or engage with our feelings, but elevate our feelings to the highest place of authority in our life. And if we feel it, we do it. If we don't feel it, we don't do it. And if someone could ask me to do something that I don't feel, how dare they? And if someone asked me to not do something that I do feel, how dare they? The great Oprah Winfrey, the prophet of our day, said this, follow your feelings. Do you notice that that is religious language? You think that we're just the religious ones in churches. Follow, I follow Jesus. No, follow your feelings. If it feels right, move forward. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Now, because we live in a culture like this, if we aren't consciously overriding that instinct all the time, then the danger is, listen to me, the danger is that we will live our Christian life by what we feel. And that, my friends, is doomed to fail very much. (laughs) Now, I think this impacts us loads in our Christian life, loads of areas of our Christian life. Uh, Anyone relate to this? Anyone anyone ever uh, known that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? and felt seriously condemned. Anyone ever had that? Yeah. Feelings or convictions. Anyone ever felt like God has abandoned me? He's not here. He has left me. Though you have the conviction, great is your faithfulness. Anyone ever had that? Right? Like all the time, hey? So it affects us all the time. But nowhere more does this dynamic, this tension affect us than in our relationship to the theme of today's passage in 1 Peter 2. And the theme is the church. The church. Now, let me be a little bit vulnerable with you for a moment. Are you okay with that? Feelings are good, aren't they? We can express them. We can engage with them. I'm going to be vulnerable with you. 
I have hugely up and down feelings about the church. And I am paid to be pretty keen. Okay? But when I wake up on a Sunday morning, I know this will only be me, so just bear with me. But when I wake up on a Sunday morning, sometimes I don't instinctively feel, yes, I get to sing in a school hall with some people that I know and some people that I should know. Some people that I don't yet know, but I'd like to know, at least when I feel it. Sometimes I then get here, and uh, obviously this is just me, but sometimes I get here and then I think, oh, it didn't necessarily feel like I wanted it to feel, you know? And then it didn't always feel like it did what I wanted it to do, sometimes, church. Sometimes it's a bit cold in the room. Sometimes it's a bit warm in the room, isn't it? Not, Not very often. Sometimes the person next to me starts to breathe so loudly. And I think, you inconsiderate little, don't you know what a night I've had? And you start to, you breathe at that volume. But of course, I just smile at them. And then sometimes uh, I kind of feel disappointed, distracted. Oh, a fly. And then I go home and I feel, you know, yeah, it's fine. What time's the rugby on? Now, our culture tells us Not simply that we should engage with those feelings, which we should, we have them. And not simply that we should express those feelings, which in an appropriate context, we should, if we have them. It tells us to elevate those feelings and let those feelings drive my convictions, my my passion, my generosity, my engagement with the church. Because I follow my feelings. But I would want to suggest to you that we shouldn't, this is risky, but we shouldn't take our doctrine of the church from Oprah Winfrey. And we should take it from Jesus and the Bible. And we should say, yes, I feel, but it is written. It is written. It is written. What we need, if you're like me and have your yo-yo feet, we need deeply held, deliberate, battle-worn convictions about God's church. And providentially, there are many in our passage today. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we're going to go verses 4 to 10. Uh, it'll come up on the screen if you if you don't have a, a Bible with you, but open it if you do. Let me read it and then we're going to see four whopping great convictions about the church that we can stand on. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, And then he goes into quite a few Old Testament quotes about how people are going to either accept or reject Jesus. Uh, So verse 6, as the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. There's a promise. Verse 7, yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and he is the stone 
that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But, verse 9, you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can, you can, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Last verse, verse 10. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Four convictions for yo-yo emotional types about the church. Number one, church is all about Jesus. Church is all about Jesus. If you're pro-Jesus, you need to know that the church is all about Jesus. It says, verse 4, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. This means we persist and we commit and we give ourselves and we get out of bed and continue to have faith till the day we drop for the church of God Because we love Jesus and we have the conviction that church is about Jesus. We are not coming primarily to an event. We are not primarily coming to our site leader. We aren't coming to, I hope my favorite worship leaders on this week. We are coming to Christ. And just to save you a lot of grief and a little bit of angst and probably a decent slice of time, let me just flag up. Zero points coming for anything else. Think about it. The O2 Academy has better music, no offense. The Balti Triangle has better food. Quarter Horse on the Bristol Road has better coffee. Yes, come on, preach. Edgebaston Cricket Ground has better atmosphere. The university has cleverer people. The library's a better building. The town hall has better communicators. Netflix is more entertaining. Your sofa and your duvet are more comfortable. But I don't know about you, I do not get out of bed on a Sunday morning for music, food, coffee, atmosphere, clever people are building communicators, entertainment or comfort. I get out of bed on a Sunday morning for Jesus because I love Jesus and he has won me and he has changed me and he is worthy of all praise and the church is about him. You are coming to Christ. When we feel it and when we don't, we are driven here by the conviction that it's about him. And then he says that he's the cornerstone. Now, I won't surprise you. I know little about building. Uh, I googled it. Let's give it our best shot. Okay. Back in the day when you were building a building, they did not have spirit levels or laser levels and things like this. So what they did at the outset of the building to ensure that the building, when it takes weeks, months, years to grow up, would be strong was they laid a cornerstone. And the cornerstone had to be strong, had to be pretty sturdy, had to be quite big. And crucially, it had to be exactly right and level. All the angles perfect. Because if you lay a cornerstone that is strong and right, then as you build bit by bit, it's a bit dusty, takes a while, 
think, I wonder what that's going to grow up into. If you are building on the cornerstone, then the building will get there. It will. Because the building depends upon the cornerstone. And Peter is saying that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church of God worldwide and then expressed in local churches like this one. He's what this thing is built on. He's the foundation. And as this thing is built, bit by bit, bit dusty, bit wonder what it's going to grow up into. As things change, which they do, we're built on the cornerstone. We can have faith and optimism because he is right. We're building on him. We give our all to God's church because Jesus is the foundation stone of this building. Church is all about Jesus. Number two, church is a temple. Verse four, Jesus is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Verse five, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. And he's using this language of many world religions and definitely in the Old Testament as well of temple and then applying it to the church. Now, we very uh, probably get a bit uncomfortable with the idea of church as a temple because we believe, don't we, thank goodness, that it isn't about the building. It's not about the building, okay? And so whereas some world faiths would say you have to come to this special place, we know that you don't have to do that. But he isn't talking about the building. He's talking about the community of God's people. Now, here's what a temple is, if you don't like the kind of religious language. A temple is simply God's house where God lives, where God takes his shoes off and is comfortable to dwell. It is his home. And uh, all the way through the Bible, we know, don't we, God is everywhere because he's like all those words you learn in RE. He's omni big and stuff. He's everywhere. Okay. We know he's everywhere. But all the way through the Bible, the God who is everywhere promises to dwell in a particular way and make his home and say, you will find me here. And he says it is in the temple. So at the start, it's Eden. Eden's the temple. We're to spread the Eden temple out. And then things go wrong. And then it's the the tabernacle, the big tent they drag around. That's where God lives. That's where he says, I'm here. And then it's the temple, 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 the shiny big temple. And then Jesus says, I'm the temple. I'm where you meet God. I'm where God dwells. And then in the New Testament, there are two places, two places that God promises to live. And it isn't King Edward's Girls' School and Lordswood Girls' School or North Birmingham Academy. It's not the building. There are these two places. See if you know them. The first is the bodies of individual Christians. That phrase, uh, your body is a temple. That's not just a poster on the wall in the gym you should sign up to. It's from scripture, where it says that the spirit comes now to dwell in us as individual believers. And the moment you believe, God's spirit dwells in you. And it says, now you're a temple. And the application in the Bible of that is, so you want to watch what you do with your body. That's the thought. But then, by far and away, the most common answer to the question, where's God's house nowadays, is the community of believers in a local church. Uh, the least engaging slide of the morning. Let's put this next one up. Here we go. Four little verses quickly to show you this. 1 Corinthians, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? 2 Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. Not just me, but we. 
Ephesians. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And then Matthew doesn't have the temple word, but the same principle. For where two or three or, what do you reckon, Tim? 150, confident. 150 are gathered in my name as my followers. I am there among them. Where does God live? Yes, he lives in me, which is why I can worship in my kitchen and on my commute. Primarily, he lives in the community of Christians as they tie themselves together. When we gather and when we scatter into the city, when we tie ourselves together as the church, God promises to inhabit that place. So, let's ground this. Feelings, convictions. Feeling. I'm singing on a Sunday morn, and I don't feel like God's here. Now, if we had the keyboard up to emotional, and the kids would stop making such a racket, particularly Rich Pitt's kids, and we could all have it a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more heavenly, because, of course, heaven's keyboard and quiet, isn't it? And it could all just be right, and God would be here. But he wasn't today. That's a shame. Conviction. God dwells in his church. He's here. He says he's here. You've got to live by convictions. I wake up on a Sunday morning and I don't feel like it. Plus, I've listened to Rich's talk, or at least some of it, and I know that I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. So I can meet with God on my own. And boy, is there better preaching on YouTube this morning and better worship. So I'm going to keep the duvet. Let's get the cup of tea. Let's settle in and let's meet with God on my own. Now, there have been moments in my life where I've been unable to come to a gathering of God's people on a Sunday. And I praise God that I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's there with me. So this is not a guilt thing. There are certain moments, aren't there? I need to say that. But whilst it is technically true that you can meet with God on your own, it totally misses the emphasis of the New Testament. Let me put it like this. While technically you do not, students, doing your church hop thing for a bit to figure out who's got the best pizza. You do not need technically to be attached to, committed to a local church to be a Christian. You don't. When I became a Christian, I'd never gone into a local church that was alive at all. Um, so, and I was, I was a Christian. You don't need to be attached to a local church to be a Christian, but you do to be a healthy one or one that obeys God or one that in any way taps into the fullness of what God has got for us. Yes, we are living stones together. Uh, yes, we are living stones individually, but we're meant to be built into a temple together. So you on your own, YouTube preacher, YouTube worship, and you're really good at it. You on your own are a shiny brick on the floor. And that is all you are. That's the best you can be. You could become the shiniest brick you've ever seen. You're a brick on your own. But then when we gather together, we are more than the sum of our parts. It's not simply that we become a pile of bricks. And some of them shine and some of them ain't shiny. And, and, and they're there and now we're a pile of bricks. Yay. When we come together as individual living stones, God dwells in his church and we become the temple of the living God. Convictions. You need convictions. Number three. The church inherits all of God's ancient promises. You see, in verse 9, there are these descriptions used of the church 
and they sound very odd to our ears, but they aren't new words. They're old words, very old words. And they're words that have always, up till now, been applied to Israel in the Bible, to God's Old Testament covenant people. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. All words borrowed from Israel's relationship with God. And what Peter is trying to say, remember, not to a glorious front page headline grabbing mega church with everyone at it, but to scattered minority, little unimpressive communities throughout the big strong empire, little Christian communities, little groups of Christians. And he says, you're not an afterthought. It wasn't Abraham, the Exodus, all the great stuff, Jesus. It was God's people building slowly, slowly. Jesus comes and he's he now his building, his project is crescendo, God's church, God's church. You're not plan B. However, it's been going this month. <laughs> However, it's been going this month, PF. We are not plan B. We inherit all of God's promises. I just want to go through them really quickly, one at a time. It says we are a chosen people. Look around you. This is not just a thing I'm saying. I now command you to do this. Look around you. Look around you. Look around you. Now, uh, I don't know if you were to ask your average Brummie to come in here and look and say, do we look like the chosen people of God? I'm not sure we do. Um, some of us more than others. you know. But uh, uh, I don't think we do. I don't think we do. I think we probably often look like a group of religious people in a school. And then maybe sometimes, if you think about statistically, you add our church to every other faithful, evangelical, biblical church in our city, and you add it all up, and you times it by 10 to make it sound more impressive, and then you look at the percentage of us in the city, and you say, we probably don't look like God's chosen people. <laughs> maybe we look like God's forgotten people. Feeling. We're forgotten. Conviction. We are God's chosen people as the church. To be really clear, not just church central, just to, just to say that. That would be a cult who thinks that. Uh, God's church worldwide and then expressed in local churches like this one and like the other brilliant ones in our city, we are chosen. And it says we're royal priests. Part of my sleeve time, you up for a little bit more vulnerability? We're okay with that? Sometimes I feel like I want church to meet my needs. I do. And I want it to come and be just right for me. Naughty rich. And I, and I come and I, and I feel, but it, it's, not, it's not how I want it. Sometimes. Then it says we're priests. Think about this. In the Old Testament, a priest had two people in his mind all the time. All the time. Who was it? It was never himself. It was never, I don't know if I fancy rocking up to the temple today. Two people in his mind. Number one, God. God was in his mind. He's a priest to bring spiritual sacrifice of worship and pigeons and bulls and goats and stuff to God. It is about God. And then the other group of people who was in his mind was not whether he felt like he kind of got enough out of it this morning. The other group of people in his mind 
were sinful people who needed the mercy and forgiveness and grace and washing and covering of God. And so he would go to God and bring worship, and then he would come out and he'd sprinkle some stuff everywhere and announce all this stuff to bring the mercy of God to people who are crushed and need it. And that's a priest. And this says, we are priests. The church is not about me. And church is not about you. It's not about pleasing you. And I know this ruffles feathers, but maybe me and you need our feathers ruffling. Verse 5 says that it's about bringing spiritual sacrifices. That please, somebody shout that word out to me. God. It's about God. Did you enjoy the worship this morning? Is primarily a question we should ask to God. It is God's church. We are worshipping him. And then it says we're to move out with the mercy and forgiveness of God to others. That is what we are about. Feeling. Didn't really do it for me today, if I'm honest. Conviction. Fine. Was never about you. I'm, I'm feather ruffling. Someone's going to have to soften this at the end. Dawn, soften it. Then it says we're a holy nation. A holy nation. This is this idea. Israel had this phenomenal calling, didn't they? Among all the nations in the world that were better, stronger, bigger, faster, harder, stronger, more great, more strong, etc. That God chooses small, weak Israel and says, I'm going to make you shine like a light in the world. I'm going to show you, not that you're the best, but that I'm the best. Through you, you're going to display my glory. And not everyone will believe it, and not everyone will see it, but I'm making you a light in the world, a holy nation. And now Peter takes that grandiose language, those promises, and applies it to dispersed, little, scattered Christian communities around the empire. And he says, you're a holy nation. Feeling. We're a tiny minority. Should we give up? Conviction. We are a holy nation, a city on a hill, the light of the world. Shall we keep going? And then it says we are God's very own possession. Ever ask this? Who are we? Who are we to make a difference? Someone asked this question in a Q&A at the big questions the other week. What does this church do? Who are we? Who are we? We can't. We should ask not who are we, whose are we. We are God's very own possession. This is my iPad. It tells me that I am overrunning my talk by approximately four minutes by the time I get to the end. Apologies. It's not about you, though. Uh, this is my possession. This is my possession. And if you come and nick this and get your little mitts on it and drop it and smash it, I'm going to be annoyed at you, and I'm going to smile about it, and we'll dig for forgiveness, but it's my possession. Don't mess with it. This is his possession. Jesus says, I will build my church. He takes ownership of us. Our confidence is not in who we are. It's in whose we are. Feeling, who are we? We can't do it. Conviction, whose are we? He can do it. Conviction number four of four. 
being part of the church is a mercy-soaked privilege. I forget that sometimes. And I think you, you might forget that sometimes. Verse 10 puts it like this. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm so glad I got Jesus and I'm so sad I got the church. I love Jesus. I'm up and down about the church. And I can let those feelings fester in me. And I can begin to believe them a bit. Once I was not a, a people, we were not a people. I was on the outside. I was grabbing around in the mud, in the dark. It says, without God and without hope in the world, Paul says. Alienated. From every promise that you put on Instagram. Separate from all the blessings of God. Lost. And maybe you know about that feeling. And, and maybe you don't because you had the unspeakable privilege of being born into a Christian family. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to be in God's people. God picks us up out of the muck and he says, I will give you a home and a family and a community and a mission and a purpose. I will graft you into the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of God, the church. And then I come and I inwardly score the song choices. And it is inappropriate. Now, soften it. Nothing I've said today negates our very real right and responsibility as living stones in the house of God to push this thing as far as it can be, to critique, to push, to challenge, to call out things that are not on, to choose great songs as we have done today and every day. It's always great and all of that. None of it gets in the way of any of that stuff. Of course, all of that stuff is important, but here's my point. May our sighs of despair and tuts of eye-rolling, we're better than you, never, never outweigh our gasps of wonder at the privilege of being drawn into the people of God. He didn't have to do that. It was not our birthright. Verse 10, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you receive no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Would you stand with me if you're able to?